Hey, Shelvies. Buckle up for a new episode of the Shelved Books Podcast, where every writer has a story that may never see the light of day. This is the podcast where authors share the stories that they shelved, the manuscripts that they may never publish. Then they explore the reason why they shelved this story. Welcome to the Shelved Books Podcast. Welcome back to the Shelf Books Podcast. If you are new here, welcome. If you are a returning listener, Shelby, welcome back. It's another new episode, another Thursday. Make sure to download our episode so that you have something to listen to over the weekend. In fact, we are a great we are a great podcast to listen to while on a hike or doing <laughs> chores or just having us in the background, you know? That's Please, you know, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. So we are your hosts, Kate Evangelista, Angie Sandro, and Christy Berman. And we have another amazing guest for all of you. I know I keep saying amazing, but then every each and every author that comes on this podcast is sincerely, sincerely amazing and talented and authentic. And today we are very excited to have an author and speaker who helps young readers explore weighty subjects through the lens of a wild, wide-eyed, wild-eyed pop culture a adult imagination, which is ah, a tongue twister for me because I'm a little dyslexic, but amazing, amazing too. And he also specializes in freaking out his neighborhood by dictating these stories into the, his phone while jogging before dawn. You know, I, I actually want to do that as well. You know, and then people would think, who's she talking to? Who is this? Who is this? <laughs> you know? His debut middle grade novel is a hilarious, heartwarming time heist that makes an inspiring playbook for budding activists. Please make sure to pre-order We the Future after you listen to this podcast. Everybody, welcome Cliff Lewis. Yay! <laughs> Hey, Cliff. Welcome <laughs> to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Yeah. So um, I am a, a debut author. What like you just described, uh, my debut book is coming out April 18th. Um, I just love to write weird stories about important things. Mm -hmm. And that's that's my whole MO is I like to think of a topic or uh something that or, or an issue that is really important to me or you know whether on the heart level or on the advocacy level what do i find important and how can i capture that message in a way that is like weird and a little strange but also really heartwarming and that's kind of like what i love to play with so yeah so i am that's the kind of storytelling i like to do i just you know, they're there. I like to play with my imagination. I've been doing it since I was like seven years old, pretending to be a Power Ranger on the playground and creating these elaborate Byzantine storylines with my friends that we would pause at, at the end of each recess and resume the next day. And I've kind of been playing in my brain ever since. Okay. <laughs> Love that. Two questions. One, yeah. which color Power Ranger were you? very important. <laughs> um, I was, I think I identified a lot with the Red Ranger. Mm -hmm. However, um, just, I mean, the saga of the Green Ranger 
entering the narrative and being like this rogue. We don't know what side he's on. Is he good? Is he bad? Ultimately, he's good. Like that ranger was like the one who really captured my imagination. But I think I identified more as the Red Ranger. Mm -hmm. See, good. I, I think, yeah, I think a lot of us as well are like either that or for me, I was like, I was most intrigued by the White Ranger when he came into this storyline. Because, yes. you know, that's like totally different from the usual, like with the five of them. And my second question is, how do you define weird? When you say weird in your in your stories, like what does that mean for you? Um, so the first thing that comes to mind is, and when we were chatting a little bit before before uh, we hit record today, the one of you pointed out the ET figurine, the large ET figurine I have in the background. That's that to me is like the the essence of the kind of weirdness that I love. Mm. ET is as a character is taken at face value a lot of like a lot of people love et or they are terrified by et et looks grotesque um et looks like freaky and and can like be nightmare fuel for a lot of people um but et if you get to know the character of et et is adorable and incredibly lovable and innocent and sweet and charming and that is that to me is kind of like that's the kind of weirdness that I love. Mm. Um, it is very much like coming from a lot of the cultural imagination of the 1980s. Like the 1980s was full of these creatures and these creations that were like lovably grotesque. There were so many lovably grotesque characters. There's like Alf, there's ET, there's Yoda, there's like all these faces and like visions of 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 life and and personality that are almost off-putting strange and yet full of heart and warmth like that's the kind of weirdness that i'm very attracted to i don't like weirdness that's like i'm not looking for weirdness that's like unsettling or off-putting i like a kind of weirdness that like it's just this little quirk you musically i think of um kate bush or peter Gabriel. these are two artists yeah. that they make music that is is like is powerful anthemic music but there's always something like a little strange in their songs like there's like Kate Bush has this very like very unusual like like sometimes squeaky sometimes screechy way of singing where she like her voice like swings up and down and warbles in all these unexpected ways and she dances and flails on stage and all these like expressive like very modern interpretive dance kind of ways and yet it's not weird for weird sake it's weird for the sake of of like a message that comes from the heart that's the kind of weirdness that i love mm. okay so more, more of the kate bush less of the bjork i would think yeah i mean bjork's great too but yeah <laughs> as far as my personal brand yeah more kate bush than bjork. yeah well because like bjork takes it takes it to that level of like you're like mm -hmm. um yeah. but her so does that then translate into your shelf book Oh, yes, it does. So <laughs> my shelf book um, is is rooted in that. So I, I talked about that menagerie of lovably grotesque creatures. And I wanted to write a book that had that. And that was probably the first spark of the idea is I wanted to create a story that uh, that took place on another world on another planet that was full of 
strange life forms and creatures and sights and sounds and smells and sensations. Mm. So I created a book that took place on this planet that's about Earth-sized, similar climate to Earth, habitable planet, full of life, um, but not intelligent life, creatures, animals, like not intelligent life as humans would understand, on, on the human level as we'd understand it. Um, and it's this beautiful planet. It's like, it's vibrant. It's full of all these strange, weird, wild life forms. It is a colorful planet with like vivid colors and green sparkly mountain ranges and scrubland meadows that are full of all these uh, like pink and orange forms of plant growth and coral reefs that grow up from the ground outside of the ocean, but actually like open air coral reefs that come up through the field. And like, I was creating this whole world in my head and that was the place where I wanted my, my story to be set. And I wanted to have characters kind of navigating this weird, wild and, and wonderful planet throughout the story. Mm. And so like, so tell us a little bit more about that. Like, well, yeah. because already it's like you have something that like jumps off the page in an, on a, you know, like I can see it as you're describing it, I can see it. So yeah. what was this, what was this story about and why was it shown? Yeah. So the story uh, was about this, the, the, perhaps the most remarkable thing about that world, which is that hidden in the middle of that scrubland field that I was describing is this little village that is hidden by like this invisible barrier. Um, and it is a human village and it is probably the last remaining human village in the universe. It's the only human beings left anywhere as they'd understand it. And they are sealed off, protected in this little, this dome enclosure where their village exists. And inside this dome, it's like this little replica of life on earth. It's this pocket of English countryside with like major Shire vibes, major like little sprinkling of wizarding world vibes. And what it is, is it's this place where people live where they've fled from a, like a burning planet earth and found a place to live and the great thing about this little this community, it's called Londonshire. And like I said, it's like a little pocket of the English countryside. And they have like just perfected life. Like they have just figured out how to do it. Um, it, it it's, it's highly advanced technologically, but it feels rustic and quaint and cozy. Um, the technology is incredibly like light years beyond anything we have today. And yet they design that technology to behave in a way that feels like magic. So the vibe, it feels like fantasy when you're inside Londonshire, just like when you go to Disney World, you feel like you're in the mad most magical place on earth. Imagine that approach to creating an environment, except it's powered by like 22nd century technology beyond anything we could imagine. So it's, you just, you feel like you live in a magical world. Everything is like this wonderful, happy place. And the story itself is about a girl named Wendy who lives in Londonshire and she lives in this place that is like the happiest village in the universe of all time. And yet she's the one person who's not happy. Oh. <laughs> I can tell you just from hearing your descriptions, I kind of want to live in Londonshire. Yeah. <laughs> um, that sounds like really cool. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I was like, what, what, what would be my perfect place? Where would be my perfect place to live? And it was something like this. Yeah, where, yeah. So do they, do they ever they, leave do the do dome? They know that they, sorry, do they know that they're in a bubble, that they're on a planet, and yeah. that the technology is what's making their world, or do they really think it's magic? Oh, they know. They yeah, they know everything. Yeah, there are no secrets. It's not. It's not like a utopia that is secretly a dystopia, or it's not like a give the giver utopia where everybody nobody feels anything. Mm. Um, yeah, they know. They know what's up. They know where they are. In fact, they study the planet beyond them, but they don't go there. They never leave because they need to protect themselves from this wilderness. But they even more importantly, they want to protect. They've seen what unrestrained human civilization can do to a planet. They saw it on Earth. And they know that they need to protect the planet from themselves and from all the invasive species and oak trees and, and grass that they brought with them in this dome. So they never leave, but they know all about it because they can send like drones out and various devices that can go and do some reconnaissance. So they know all about this planet, but they don't go there. They stay safely within the boundaries so of self-contained. So they they don't use the water, they don't use the air, they recycle everything within their dome. Yes. Yeah. Everything is very like sick. They might as well be in a spaceship, but it doesn't feel like a spaceship because it's very large. And it's this, you know, it's like several miles around, like in its diameter. And it, you know, you could get lost in the woods there, but cool. it's, yeah. Yeah. But it's contained. So why is Wendy upset? Why is she the only one not happy with her, mm. her life? Yeah. So the reason is Wendy is. Oh, and by the way, I didn't tell you the coolest thing about London Shore. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, I'm so, I'm, yeah, by the way, I want, I just want to say, like, I am so excited. I'm way too excited to talk about this story because I love this story. I'm also really nervous because the image in my mind of like, like the worst case scenario of this conversation is that in my mind is that I'm going to end up looking like Ben Wyatt from Parks and Rec explaining the cones of Dutcher. <laughs> Like getting like way lost in like the lore of all of this, but anyway, but why it's fun. Is, we're having fun? It's okay. Yeah. Why is why is Wendy sad? Wendy is sad because she has lost someone who was very close to her, mm -hmm. and there was this friend that she had named Ivy, who was like this manic pixie dream friend that she had spent her whole childhood with, who had ended up. In, in like in her later teens or actually no not her later teens as she got as they got a little older um she died accidentally and it was the only untimely death that this community has ever seen mm -hmm. everyone in this community lives out their days to their old age in a warm bed and like it's everything's very idyllic and peaceful from mm -hmm. birth to death wendy experienced the one untimely death which was like which hit everyone hard but, but no one was as close to the pain as Wendy was. So everyone else found a way to like, find a way to just kind of slide back into their contented existence. Mm -hmm. And Wendy can't, she wishes she could. She wishes she could feel, because she, she loves Londonshire, who wouldn't? Like she wants to love it again. She wants to be back in the feeling that she had when she knew her friend Ivy, but she just can't reclaim that feeling anymore. And that's where her sadness is coming from. Yeah, I kind of want to read this book, Nercliff. So yeah, you're gonna like, have to do why something. Is this book now in existence? Why is it not <laughs> about why can't I pre-order this book? Why I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's 
it's it is the book of my heart like but the funny thing is I feel like every book is the book of my heart like because you write you got to put so much of yourself into anything you write so it's like it's a shelved book but I love this book and the people I know well who have read it like feel feel like very fond of it and will bring it up like my favorite beta reader is my is my wife Jen and like she reads everything I write everything I write I'm just trying she's like she reads more than I do because ha- I spend time writing in addition to reading so like she's like a great critic she she still will bring this book up like in the midst of reading her like awesome literature like Ursula K Le Guin and stuff that's like miles past anything I would ever write but yet still like has fond memories of this story Ooh. I want to tell you though I forgot to tell you about the coolest thing about Londonshire and this is, I am going to go Ben Wyatt here a little bit, but um, I mentioned that the technology in Londonshire, and I'm, I'm bringing this up because this is everyone's favorite thing about this book. Like when this book was, when I was querying on this book, um, I would get, and I'd get like rejection after rejection. The one thing people would always say that they really, at least the one thing they'd say they liked was this, um, which is the technology is incredibly advanced and yet it's designed to feel like magic. And the crown jewel of that whole set of technologies is something called a lanthorn. And a lanthorn, I actually brought a lanthorn. A lanthorn oh. looks like this. Oh. This, It's this little lamp. Um, and it is. it looks very rustic and old fashioned, like a little lantern. And a lanthorn uh, can hover, it can fly, it can flit around, it follows you around. And it is made out of sort of a, uh, like a nanotechnology so it can reshape itself into any form you want but the very best thing about a lanthorn is that is the software of a lanthorn which is like the most wholesome artificial intelligence you could possibly imagine like it is it is an AI whose intelligence is modeled less after trying to recreate human intelligence and more trying to like recreate the heart and soul of like a golden retriever so <laughs> really warm-hearted uh person really and and every person in Londonshire is given a lanthorn from the time of their birth that is their companion till the time of their death it's so it's like they're familiar it's like they're if you're thinking about the dark materials universe it's almost like they're demon from those stories and it is with you for your entire life and you form a very close emotional bond with this lanthorn that is there as like your helper as you're really and your all-purpose technology it can almost do anything for you want it to do it can become anything you need it to become and everyone is accompanied by one of these so total just like commercial for lanthorns i had to do because <laughs> <laughs> everyone needs one yeah, yeah. yeah. but what so how did this all happen that you had to shelve this book? Because it sounds amazing. Like, yeah, you've got three fans right here. Yeah. Um, so it was shelved. So the story was I started, I took a long time to write this book. I took like three, almost four years to write this book. Wow. And it was the first book I ever wrote. And wow. I'd written some little short stories prior to that. And I spent a lot of time on the world building. And then I was drafting it as a YA novel. So in the earlier... Uh, drafts Wendy was um, 18 years old so she had finished like what what we would consider high school and she and if so that was the earliest version I had drafted and by the way there's a lot more to the story I just basically described the opening premise of everything but there's a whole adventure that takes her out as you might imagine given all the setup I gave about the planet Neverfield 
she it ends up turning into a journey across like a backpacking across the wilderness of Neverfield. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I dreamed this up as a YA novel and I drafted it. I world built for almost a year. Then I drafted it for a couple more years. The first draft was like 130,000 words long. It was like way too long. I had to cut like so much out of it. It was like, and I, I was just learning how to write a novel while I wrote this novel. And so the first drafts were horrendous, like truly like dumpster fire. Like there were, there were passages, the passages that were supposed to be emotional were like so saccharine and laying it on so thick, like that I, it's so cringe for me to read back through those earlier drafts, but like I refined and I rewrote and I reread and I would print it up like in these big stacks and I'd go through it with just a pen and like mark things up and circle things and cross off huge passages and like just kind of figure out how to make the story work better. Um, so then by 2017, so like after I'd started writing it, uh, I got this book into Pitch Wars 2017. Cool. And so I had a Pitch Wars mentor. I went through the rigmarole of completely, basically completely rewriting the book as most folks would do when Pitch Wars was running as a mentee. Like you just have to rewrite the entire book in like three months. Ooh. And so intense. It's like, it's like grad school level, like crunch time. Um, it's really, really brutal process, but, but rewarding. So I came out of that and kind of like the culmination of pitch wars is the agents showcase where you're, you have like a pitch and an opening passage and agents comb through it and, and request full manuscripts. I got a few requests. I did not end up with representation after that. So the book, like just, it just, it just wasn't, wasn't that it wasn't it and so it kind of languished for a while there and the one comment that I got that really stuck with me was somebody said that it read like middle grade mm -hmm. so I read that as YA but they were saying it reads like middle grade so um I still just sat on it like and I, I didn't for at least a year I just didn't write anything my, my day job was getting really busy and I was bummed out about like how this book seemed like it was so like, it's your first book and you're writing your first yeah. book. You just feel like this is going to change my life because it's a big deal that you're just writing a book at all. Yeah. It's like, cause that's a, that's the stage that most people aspiring writers don't even get past. So you're like, this is happening. This is real. Like the book is real. I wrote one. Mm -hmm. and, and then to feel it kind of like that dream sort of deflate and like, it was a lot. So I didn't do a lot of writing for about a year. And then, but I had that idea of middle grade kind of floating in my mind. And then I ended up writing a middle grade, uh, writing my first middle grade, which um, took up a lot of my time and attention uh, for the next couple of years. And that ultimately became We the Future, um, which is now going to be my debut. Um, so that I'm touching on that to say that I secured in agent, agent representation because of we the future mm -hmm. and then my agent read the manuscript the many many times revised manuscript for what is now called the wild beasts of neverfield mm -hmm. and and she thought it had a lot of potential so we reworked it as a middle grade so <laughs> i and i didn't have to change a lot because that one agent was correct in saying that it read like middle grade yeah. so 
I reworked it. I had to slim it down in length. Like I'd already brought it way down from 130,000 words, but I had to bring it from like 90,000 down to like 66. And oh, like, that's hard. That's yes. hard. Yeah. So I had to slash a lot and reword things and, and did have to tweak the tone a little bit. And, and I made it way better. Like the version that now exists, like the earliest version was super cringe for me. The latest version I'm still really proud of. And that ended up going out on submission, but still like we got a lot of like, I love Lanthorns. I want to go to London. Sure. The world is great. Um, you know, but just like nothing, just never quite got that, like found the right editor or Ooh. something about it. Like I, I may need to refine, like we're thinking about it right now. It's not with anybody anymore. So it's kind of, and I'm very focused now on getting ready for the debut and also working on a new work in progress. It's just a completely different story. Nice. So I shelved the book, but like a shelved book that I'm like still holding a little flame for. Yeah. Or yeah. I love that. I may find a home someday. Yes. Oh, yes. I, I wouldn't want to let it go either because it's like, oh my gosh, it sounds so, it sounds so good. I, I want to read it right now. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's the thing is like how, because you, you're right. The emotions that go with writing a novel into completion, especially something that's you started off with like a monster book. It's like 130,000 words. And then you had to cut it down and then cut it down some more. So how were you feeling during that process? Was it still like a hopeful thing? Or are you, you know, are it, is there a frustration that comes with it? Mm. Um, I don't know if there was ever a point where I was particularly, I mean, the darkest point emotionally was just after that first pitch wars, when I put this book through the ringer of that, and then nothing really seemed to come of it. That was really sad and almost like a little shameful to feel like, oh, I had put so much of myself into this thing. And then it just kind of like, is just twisting in the wind. Um, that was the worst part, but going through every revision has been a joy because I have had like a, a fondness for the world of the story and I still do. And like every time I rework it and I make the, like I, I make the story leaner and tighter and I like better realize the, the arc, the emotional arc for Wendy and like tighten that, um, it makes me feel like I'm getting closer and closer to somehow like bringing this story into, into the world. So, so yeah, it's never been like cutting it down shorter. There was a point in that 130,000, uh, version draft when my wife read it for the first time. Um, and I was like, you know, I knew she was like at a certain point, I'd like kind of peek at like where she was in the binder. <laughs> like, oh, that part? Okay. Like you're right near a really major twist and like not telling her that, but thinking that, and, <laughs> Um, there was a major twist that I built into the story and that reveals some things about this planet and this world and um, that were like, would have been completely unexpected that I thought was like a real bombshell moment. And the way that I'd written it was, it was too, it was too complex and she was just confused. So like, there was a moment that was supposed to be like, like oh, like, um, mind blown. And instead it was just like mind confused. I don't understand <laughs> what you just explained. 
that's I don't get it. And that was frustrating. Like, uh, like, okay, like I um like I it's it's hard to like not feel like you're being precious about your work, like and or being um like ego driven or like a diva about like, well, I thought it was great. Um <laughs> So, I think you have a right to be a diva about your stories, though. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, right? A little bit. But that was my first time. Like, that was literally my first time writing an entire book and having someone critique it. So now it's a little bit like, all right, like, you know, I'm I'm having my second or third baby now. Like, I know how to, I know what it's like to go through maternity ward and do this. Like, <laughs> that's like, a great way of saying it. Now. Bring that, yeah, bring the anesthesiologist in. Come on, let's move. Like, um, <laughs> It's a little more like that now. So it's, yeah, but, and that's how it is even on the subsequent revisions of the book. It's like, it's not painful. Like I, I'm okay with reworking things. So I was curious, do you save the work, like all the, the words that you cut out of the story and the, do you save any of it and then maybe use it later for like the second book or, um, or it, or even for something else, or do you just uh, let it go? Yeah, I have a I have a folder in my Google Drive that's called I, I forget what it's called, but it's like it's all of my like deleted scenes and like removed sections and stuff. Like I save them just mm -hmm. in case because things do sometimes come back, like mm -hmm. depending on what the next revision calls for. So I do have that kind of like scrapyard document that has everything still in it because there are a lot of moments and set pieces and like air whole whole like sections of Londonshire that. I dreamed up and interior designs of buildings and like how things are made, how things are manufactured and like things that don't aren't in any of like the subsequent later drafts of the book that I had thought through that I still hold to. Like, so some of those deleted chapters are almost like my book Bible of like the world building rules. Cause I'd like fleshed it all out in the earlier drafts. Like before I realized like, yeah, I don't need to explain how like spoons are made. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, so I'm wondering. Like, oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I'm just going to say, like, I feel like that's how uh, Tolkien was feel, you know, because you have these passages from Tolkien that are like, yes, it's grass. We get it. It's grass. But yeah, but it's world. It's part of the world building sometimes, you know, and um, and to really spend so much time in that world. I honestly, you know, I honestly want it to be shared with, because it's like, you know, it's like just to keep it to yourself. Sometimes it's like, oh, there's this really beautiful world that um, I want the rest to read about. Yeah. It's like, it's like playing Power Rangers. It's like, yeah. I don't want to play this by myself. Yeah. You know? like, <laughs> I want somebody to come, come into this world. Like, you know, we're, we're fighting these uh, like evil, we're getting into the Megazord and fighting these big you know creatures and like we've created villains and like come like come and see yeah you, you want people to be a part of it you want people to experience it now i'm wondering so you write it as a ya and you get through pitch wars and it doesn't work and then you said you took like a year off yeah where you didn't write what made you pick up the pen again and what made you pick up the pen and write an mg story um i i was um First thing that happened was I met another middle grade author that lived near me. And it was really funny because it was a job interview. He was interviewing for a job and his name's Adam Perry. He just, his most recent book is called Ghosts Come Riding, Rising, Ghosts Come Rising. 
Ghosts Come Rising, if you want to Google it. I keep saying it wrong. Um, and he's published two other middle grades. And he he's a fantastic writer, wild imagination, and just like a personality that like I really jive with. And he came in for a job interview at this ad agency I was working at. And he was, and it was cool because he was interviewing not for a writing position, but for a like sort of um, creative direction, kind of art oriented position. Um, Cause that's kind of like his day gig is like, he does a lot of graphic design and art direction and creative direction. So he was coming in for that. And one of the things he pulled out of his bag was like, oh, this is this book I just published. And I was like, oh, that's so cool. And I did not like want to embarrass myself as like, you know, like a, a wannabe published author. So I was just kind of like, I just asked him a few questions about it. And he, and he, it, 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 the funny thing was he didn't even get the job. Cause like he was, it was one of those interviews where he was kind of like, I just want to hear, I'm just interested or I'm just curious about it. Like, I kind of like where I am. And then it turned out that like someone else um, was like super passionate about getting the job. And we were like, okay, well, we're going to go with the passionate person, but this guy's great. Um, and uh, so it was no hard feelings. And he reached out to me later and he was like, are you an author? Are you a writer? And he had like sensed it based on the questions I was asking him about his book. Like he could just tell that I wrote. And I was like, well, yeah, actually I, I do have this manuscript. And he was like, oh, you want me to take a look at it? Like I can check it out. And like, he read it and like, he shared his thoughts and told me what he liked about it and what he thought wasn't working. And he was like, hey, um, I'm working on my next work in progress right now. Do you want to read it? Like I could really use like a fresh set of eyes. And I was like, sure. So I was reading his middle grade and it just made middle grade feel like it made me understand how it works to see a person who writes it, to meet someone and to think like, like, I think I can, I think I can do this too. And so it just encouraged me to do that. And then I had an experience in my life that gave me the idea for my next novel, which was, I was involved in a local congressional campaign in 2018 and in my community. And I, my house was a staging location for canvases. And this particular campaign was like getting into national media and people were really excited about it. And there were some climate organizations, uh, climate activism organizations that had taken interest in our campaign in particular and had sent like this envoy of young climate activists to help support the campaign wow. because they knew that this was a candidate that was going to push for really strong, aggressive climate legislation. Yeah. So we had these activists from this organization called Sunrise Move that, and my house was a staging location for canvases. And we had our own like sunrise, like aides that were there with us every time we had to get out the vote weekend. So they were like in our house. And then their other sunrise friends were like coming over and like, we were making this big pot of vegetarian chili. It's like most of them are vegetarians. And like, we were just like dishing out. They're like, they're like, oh, this chili's so great. And like their friends are coming there, hang out. And we were meeting them and we were seeing, I was seeing how passionate they were and how like they knew, like they were laser focused on a mission that they had that like they saw their future on the line. They saw the future of the world on the line. And they knew that like what they were doing at this moment was the, the most important thing they could possibly be doing. And so they, they were nonstop, like they worked so hard, not with like a workaholic, like slave to the work kind of attitude, but like kind of joyfully. And just with this energy, they, they were constant, they were like, take, they had, a, if they had a little break, they would just like get on a phone bank real quick, just for fun. 
like, mm-hmm. they'd start, like dialing, get on a dialer, or they would do some text banking. Like they'd fill every moment with the work. And it left me with this idea of like telling a story about someone who is exactly that passionate and it has that sense of conviction mm-hmm. and that sense that like the future is on the line, which, which then became the story of a, of a time traveling climate activist from the year 2100 who has traveled back to the 2020s to rewrite history. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah, so that became it, the middle grade. It is. I mean, when you listen, like, I, like Cliff actually has a surprise for us where he gave us the uh, audio version and the video version of the first chapter of We the Future, which you will be able to listen to at the end of this podcast. I have I've already taken a peek and like I said, the moment I finished, I pre-ordered the book because I really, really want to read it. And I think it's a very important book to have like right now and to but told in such so is that where your weird comes in where it's a time traveling um activist? Or are there other aspects of the weird that make it into the book? Yeah, there, there's a lot of a lot of the weird. That is the core, like the core premise is also that. And and it was um and it was, I think it was like my weird engine in my brain that like made the book happen because after that experience I had was the initial ended up planting the seed of inspiration. But the real push for me to come up with this idea was I was listening to a podcast with an author. Uh, or nonfiction writer named uh, David Wallace Wells, who wrote a, mm-hmm. not a book called the, um, the Uninhabitable Earth, came out mm-hmm. in like 2019 or something. And it's like just a brutal portrait of worst case scenarios of, mm-hmm. of unrestrained un, um, climate change, and which, does, which are not examined closely enough, often enough, because many of the worst case scenarios are easily as likely statistically as the middle case scenarios or the best case scenarios. But we often look at the best case or the middle case. We don't often think about some of the worst case, really apocalyptic possibilities. He was talking about this and he said he finds it so confounding that the popular imagination has not been um, captured by this these this reality as much as, as ha- has been captured as little as it has. And he said, there are a lot of stories about the future. There are a lot of stories that feel dystopian, but they're not often dystopian because of this massive life-defining change that we are approaching. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also said, you know, the way he said it was, it's like almost a theological turning point that we're facing as, as a species. And yet he doesn't see a lot of stories just exploring that directly. And I was listening to it thinking, okay, okay, this is somewhere, I was thinking about those sunrise activists and it's like, okay, well, I have a family, I have kids, like I can't run off and become a sunrise activist, like, but what can I do? And it's like, well, I can write a story about this. Like, that's one thing that I can do. And so I started thinking, how can I write a story that takes what I saw from those activists and turns it into something that isn't just like a middle grade contemporary, but it's like a story that could be like appealing to a reluctant reader or a story that like just really is like a page turner, you know, not and and is like really compelling and full of action and excitement. And how can you take this idea of the climate crisis, which is often is so easy to overlook because it's happening in slow motion? Mm. How can you take it and make it feel very immediate, 
And so I was just like, you know, after many, many hundreds of hours watching Doctor Who and <laughs> weird Terry Pratchett and stuff, I was just like, well, obviously, like you introduce a character from the year 2100 and bring them to now so that you see so you have a character who is in our world now. Mm. So we relate to them because they're here. And yet they're bringing with them like the hard realities of like what's happening in the world and it makes it feel immediate and urgent mm -hmm. rather than important and slow it's like no this is it is important but it's also urgent now mm -hmm. and we have a character that kind of embodies that so yeah so it was like a, a weird way of thinking about climate change to say like it's happening in slow motion it's off in the future well let's bring the future here and then that's going to help us tell the story there's a lot of other weird stuff in it as well um there's a goat that screams and sounds exactly like Chewbacca. When it's, <laughs> there's, um, there's a reality TV show host uh, who is like equal parts like Dave Batista and Guy Fieri, who enters the narrative at a certain point. Um, there's a lot of like funny, weird hijinks and like and and like every goofy thing you can imagine doing with time travel happens at some point in the story as well. So like there's, there's a lot of that weirdness, even though it's like, it's wrapped around something that's really important and, and you know, like, and really intense and, and serious. So speaking of time travel, what are your rules in this book for time travel? Because there's always rules, right? So uh, what are yours in for, for, for this particular story? Um, the rules of time travel in the story, you definitely do not want to encounter any other versions of yourself mm. and the main character or, or the, so the main character of the story is actually a boy from the 2020s. So like, cause I wanted the story to come through the lens of, of our decade and our time period. But the second most important character is this girl named Sunny who comes from the future. And, um, her rules of time travel are like the most important thing is that she doesn't want to do anything that compromises the mission. Mm -hmm. So, and there's always the possibility and she knows there's a possibility that like she could, she could negate her own life in, in some way. Um, but it's worth it. What she knows it's worth it, what she's doing. Um, but there are points where they take like little micro jumps in time to, as like an assist for what they're trying to accomplish because sometimes they get themselves in a corner and time travel is the best way to get out of it. Mm. Um, but the real goal is always anything that we've accomplished or built, um, we need to make sure that we don't undo any of the progress we've made. Mm. So so the rules are, are really those. I like I wasn't this wasn't like hard sci-fi like time travel type story. I mean it's like it's a fun, it's a romp, you know. So there is a lot like like I'm I'm going on Bill and Ted rules of uh mm. <laughs> for a lot of this book um but uh yeah so the, so the main the, so the main roles are really like as it pertains to the plot that the, the characters are going to make sure that no matter what they don't do anything to compromise or undo any of the progress or any of the work they've they've thus far accomplished in their mission yeah and then the reason why i ask that is because sometimes it's so easy to get caught up yeah. in the you know that work that aspect of the world building where it's like okay how does my time travel work how does you know what happens if this happens it, and it's so easy that it sort of becomes the the plot and the characters take a back seat in order to service that so how were you able to balance 
the addition of this aspect of time travel with the storyline, the character growth and the plot. Yeah. Well, it was very character driven and and also plot driven more so than like there was so little world building and like the rules that I established for this at the beginning were so slim and simple for how the time travel worked. It was like it really was like a 180 from what it was like writing Wild Beasts of Neverfield where I had to create like a world out of whole whole cloth and to, to the point that it's sometimes hard to explain that book because I have to set the table with all the the prep the whole premise of that world um no this was it was such a simple set of rules so the way that I would I just wrote in fact the way I wrote this book was I wrote it as fast as I could and I was um what I did was I I, I was getting ready because I wanted to enter it into pitch wars 2019 when I was drafting and I, so I started writing it and I was, and I knew that the submission period was coming up in like four months. So I had the idea and I've never felt more like I need to write this. This is, for, this is more than just for my like aspirations as an author. This is like, this is for my kids. This is like something I'm doing for the world to write this book. I want to put this out into the world. So I wrote it with the same like fervor and energy as I saw in those sunrise movement activists. Like, mm -hmm. so I wrote it as fast as I could. And one of the things I did was I go for a jog most mornings and I would take my phone and I would jog around my neighborhood and I would dictate the book into my phone while I was running. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get past, I actually came, I made up a term for it, cardio drafting. And <laughs> You want to get past like writer's block like and if you want to write stuff and and not and and also i don't know this that i can sometimes when i'm writing with a keyboard and i'm like typing i can get lost in like what i'm seeing on on the page mm. and i can get lost in like the mechanics of the sentences and stuff when you're cardio drafting and you're just dictating it like you can't and you also can't bs yourself like if you like you're you're not gonna your heart's pounding like you're 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 sweating like you're not gonna write like I'm not gonna write something or dictate something that I think is like a like a weak line like I'm gonna say it when I feel it and mm. because it's in between like panting breaths mm. so I drafted it while I was running and it was so character driven because it was literally like dialogue was dialogue from my mouth like I was saying the dialogue so it was like I was just acting this whole story out. So like I really wasn't bogged down in the mechanics of the the time travel principles and stuff because I was just following like whatever matched like the passion and energy I was feeling while I was, you know, running four miles in the morning. Wow. I love that. And I feel mm. like like by running and, and dictating, like I think you've discovered a whole new way of like yeah. drafting books there. And I love the cardio drafting. That totally kudos to you for that. But I feel like when you're doing exercise and it's intense, that part of your brain that says no, no, no all the time can't say no because you're so active doing something else. And so you're not like auto filtering. That's fantastic. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We discovered, we discovered another new way to write, ladies. <laughs> yes. Well, he did. And we're just talking about it. <laughs> That's why it's like we discovered it through Cliff. It's like he's yes. teaching us that. If we are, you know, if, if what an amazing way to get around writer's block. It's like, yes, go out, do something, and then 
dictate as yeah. you go. And it works. It works for running. It works with walking. You know, I've just sometimes walked and dictated. Sometimes I just dictate it at home. Like I'm even sitting down and I just shut my computer and dictate. And mm -hmm. I, I get a lot more words written that way. Mm -hmm. And they're messier and they're full of like weird voice to text glitches and stuff. But I found that it was way more effective and I got a way better product. Like the voice, like mm -hmm. you want voice, like write a book with your voice. Like, no, that was that was what I did. So, um, yeah, I highly recommend it. It's like a pretty great. It's a great dictation is an amazing tool, and I it's it's mainstay for me now. Any any book, I I often do some of the first passes that way. And you can do it anywhere. You can be on a train, on a bus. Well, okay, they would look at you a little funny, but who cares? Like, you, it's really that's great. Yeah. Oh, talk. I mean, yeah, people look at you funny. I had moments running around my neighborhood. I'm writing a book, so and We the Future is about these kids plotting a climate strike. And the way that I had written it was I wanted it to feel almost like a heist, kind of Ocean's Eleven. Like I wanted to have that energy. I wanted political organizing to feel like we're assembling the crew and we're like we're we're, we're like we have a, a day that's called Zero Hour where we're going to stage this big thing, and it's going to be at the school, and we're going to like coordinate. We're going to show up at the school at a certain time and do these certain things, and like, um. I'm running around my neighborhood talking about school related plots. Like it sounds bad. Like, and there were points where I was like, Ooh, like maybe don't dictate that line right now. Like I <laughs> their front porch, like um, just the seemingly talking to myself, like not a good look, but um, yeah. Where you One day that. you just have the FBI like knocking at your door. <laughs> yeah. say, um, disturbing. Um, That's right. Anonymous tip. Anonymous tip, <laughs> Mr. Lewis. Uh, mind, uh, mind if you tell us what you are up to. Um, yeah. And and so does the urgency? Do you find that urgency works better for your writing, or because um, I suppose because it's a totally different vibe from your first your shelf book, which is like. A slow and steady kind of took you years to really germinate as opposed to something that you wrote in a span of a few months yeah i don't know if i'll ever write something with that same level of urgency that i wrote we the future because it was like a time sensitive story like dealing addressing a time sensitive topic and issue and challenge and i thought it matters. Like every, every day matters, every month matters. And yeah. let me get this out as soon as I can. So I don't know if I'll ever hit it exactly that hard, but certainly like the lesson I learned about putting some blinders on and just blasting through words and particularly doing it through dictation, I think is something I'm going to use on anything I ever write again. Mm -hmm. What app do you use? Do you use an app for the dictation or just I, yeah, I open, I just, I go into a Google doc and I dictate into the Google doc. I just use the little like microphone button on my keypad on my phone and just talk into it. I am, I wrote the book on a pixel two XL and it seems to have the best dictation I've ever found on any device. I have a new Google pixel phone now. It's way worse than the <laughs> It was a Pixel 6 and it's worse than the Pixel 2. An iPhone is worse. Like the newest iPhone is worse. Like, so I don't know why, but the Pixel 2 XL is like, was the best like piece of hardware slash software that I ever had for dictation. But yeah, it's just the, you know, it's just the built-in dictation function going into a Google Doc. And then I would 
open it up after the run and I would go into a Word doc, copy paste whatever I'd written that day over and then clean it up. And it would require a lot of cleanup, but it was still, still was, I was still getting more words out faster than I ever had before. Because at least it was there already. You know, it's not necessarily like staring at a blank page. No, yeah. yeah. A lot of fodder after that, after any of those sessions. That is That's so great thing. Yeah, I never even thought to do that. And I have a dragon, the dictation dragon. And I, yeah, I never even thought to you do it. You know, you're cleaning the yard, you know, you can be dictating or, you know, and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's like maximizing. It's, it, I guess it's like balancing two doing two things at once mm -hmm. that sort of drowns out the because i think we have a natural tendency to doubt what it is that we are doing what, we, what it is that we are writing of course definitely if you've gone through a disappointment where you've had like uh you put your heart and soul into something and then it doesn't necessarily pan out the way you thought it would so that sort of did did those feelings follow you into writing we the future or how are you able to like you know keep it steady and think okay i have to write this book like how so you're saying how did i how did i push back like the doubts that can come from having yes. gone through a difficult uh first first book experience yeah i you know it was just such a different book mm -hmm. that and such a different story that there wasn't a lot um that I felt I there wasn't much like psyching me out based on that first experience. And but I could definitely imagine that some of how I approached the second book was because of it, like the way that I just kind of like blew through it because I just knew I couldn't afford to let go through so many passes. Mm. And I mean, the wild thing is like I, I wrote this so fast and I basically didn't even like I, my apologies, my great apologies to my mentor, Pitch Wars mentor, Sean Easley, who had to, who became saddled with this manuscript to support it as a mentor. But I basically didn't even read back through it when I submitted it to Pitch Wars because I had so little time to draft this thing up that I like drafted it and cleaned it up a little bit. And like it was the due date had arrived for submissions. And I was like, just closed my eyes and hit send. <laughs> somebody saw potential in it. and uh but yeah I mean I so I I had really agonized over a lot of details on the earlier versions of Neverfield and so that would be like one that was something I learned but it at no point did it really like psych me out I think it's just because it felt so different mm. yeah and I, I I honestly I think I believe that there is something to be told about um your manuscript does not need to be perfect it does mm. not need to be. And I think the discovery of the potential is enough for someone to say, hey, I think I see something here. Because, um, and, and, and that's something I'm working through in my own psyche. Because um, having had several books published already, what happened to me was I would anticipate what my, what the fictional editor in my head would instruct me to edit as I go along so that that sort of crippled my writing process because I would be too focused on what would the edits be as opposed to just writing the story as I love it and as I've imagined it in my own head so that that is a lesson that I am really learning every day and that I'm so happy that you were able to share with us Cliff because 
Um, yeah, because there, are, I'm, I'm pretty sure there are many listeners right now that are perfectionists that are editing their manuscripts to death and not and refusing to let go, knowing that oh maybe that one typo is going to give them the rejection. <laughs> you know, which in reality there are many published books with several typos in. We have we have seen typos in published novels, so that that is not necessarily the the decision point of an agent or an editor or a reader that, oh, there's a typo. No, this book is trash, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's, thank you so much for sharing that with us and, and sharing that journey. We, we, in all honesty, you have fans in us already and we are putting it out there in the universe that this Your Shelf book must find a home one day because we want to read them we we want to read that world that you have built uh so hard so please don't let go of this book <laughs> yeah. you know and 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 one day we really really hope that it does find a home and yes yeah. But, yes <laughs> yeah and actually that's, that's what i wanted to ask is like so if you die what happens to your lanthorn yeah um the lanthorn it's what's that? Does it disappear or does it die with you or does it live on? I'll tell you what happens. It's sad. <laughs> it's sad. Um, it, no, it's not sad. It's beautiful. Like so the lanthorn, when you die, the lanthorn powers down mm -hmm. and doesn't turn on again. And in Londonshire, uh, they do like a sort of cremation with people's remains. And this is your urn. Oh. Aww. Yeah. The lanthorn is your own. And that's like, and oh, so it's, it's a little, little circle of life and lanthorns are very like interwoven with that. Yeah. Gosh, I still want to read this book. I know, right? Oh my yeah. God. Oh. oh my gosh. Like, like, okay. I'm just, no, yeah. it's not my story, but I, I have like a, what if, like, what if, like, they thought she died because her lanthorn powered down but then mm. there's no body. But then suddenly, Wendy sees like a flicker of life somewhere in that. And then she's, she's, like, she's writing oh, the sequel no, for you, Cliff. Like, I have to find her and, you know, go from that and say, and I'm yeah. just, I'm Lanthorn just spitballing here. Yeah. <laughs> Lanthorn Lord yeah. is very big. Lanthorn Lord is very big in the story. And it is funny that you bring up the friend because that is a part of the story from an <gasps> early point that the... The friend had died the only untimely death. Mm. And therefore the whole process of how the Lanthorn powers down and all this stuff, like it didn't happen that way. And her Lanthorn, her friend's Lanthorn just glitched out and flew off. And it's just kind of flailing around like in the, the shadows of Londonshire. And Wendy knows that that Lanthorn is still out there somewhere. And that's part of the inciting event of the story is like- Oh my God. You know, that her friend's Lanthorn is still just like flapping wildly kind of- of its element lost its mind a little bit without her friend which is really like it feels like a parallel to how Wendy's feeling as well I wish I'm getting goosebumps I yes so right I need the story so much and and thank you for sharing it with us because um we you know we we don't we we when we have authors on we don't necessarily like we don't pressure them into giving if they don't want to give details about the story yeah. We don't necessarily pressure it, but thank you so much for giving those yes. details because we can, 
I mean, I can see this like as a graphic novel or because of the world that's been mm-hmm. built, that you've built. And I'm like, please, if there's an artist out there, <laughs> reach yeah. out to Cliff. Uh, <laughs> it it's just my work as a graphic. I, 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 I want to see this. I honestly do. And it, it has like that, that um, what's that story? That uh, big something vibe. Um, I forget. I forget. It has it's it's the story. It's also with the with big monsters and this kid and with the big monsters. Where the wild things are? Uh, no, it's it's similar, but but it's like it has big in the title. And I and I'm and I'm my COVID fog brain is like messing up my my memory. But it's when I remember it, I will share it, dear Shelby. But I feel like I feel like Shelby's are like screaming the title at me right now. Maybe <laughs> you can just type it in the comment section for us. Right. Yeah, it's it, 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 it involves monsters as well and this kid, and it has big in the title anyway. But Cliff, thank you for sharing that story. We are in awe of that story, and we will definitely, definitely keep thinking about it and you know helping you because you've already done the hard work. So we're trying to put it out there in the universe so that the universe meets you halfway and, uh, you know, it finds the editor that will take it the rest of the way home that we have a physical copy of that book. Because I can already imagine the cover of that book. So (laughs) it needs to happen. So now I will now segue into Christy, then speed round questions. Take it away. Thank you. Okay, so... Anything you feel like answering, one one word answers or a whole, it's up to you, but they're really simple. You ready? Yes. If you could live anywhere in the world, would you stay where you are now or would you go somewhere else? Um, I would go somewhere else probably, but I don't know precisely where. I want to live closer to a forest than I do right now. Mm, That's a very good answer. I like that. Would you rather skydive, bungee jump, or climb Everest? Ooh. Let's say climb Everest. You got the forest theme going, so it's yeah. all good. <laughs> Do you prefer to sleep in late or take a nap during the day? Ooh, nap during the day. I am a power nap uh, hacker. I take <laughs> multiple naps every day Mm -hmm. Um, i do not drink coffee i used to drink a huge amount of coffee and instead of coffee i have found and most people can't do this i don't i'm not prescribing this because it just works for my body but like i can put my head down on my desk and fall asleep within 60 seconds and sleep for six minutes and feel incredible after i wake up like better than any cup of coffee ever made me feel. And I can ride on that for like most of the day. Um, Cause I don't sleep a lot at night. Cause I have to go to bed late and just dealing with stuff around the house. And then I have to wake up really early in the morning to work on writing. And then I have my day job, but I work from home on my day job and I can put my head down and take a five minute nap anytime I need to. So naps. That's so cool. That's a great skill to have actually. Yeah. Um, the next one is, who is your favorite villain? Ooh. I don't know. I, I I like that's too hard to choose. Like I um like what characteristics would your favorite villain have then? 
my favorite villain well i think the best villains are the ones who are are delightful to watch so i remember hearing that back during like the old pageant plays in the middle ages um the best actors would get the part of the devil in a passion play those traveling passion plays and that was like that was the choice role you didn't want to be jesus you want to be the devil in the passion play and that's the best role. And so any role that I ever see in a in a novel or in film that captures that kind of added that that vibe where the villain is the star of the movie, like this is such a uncool example, but like I think of the Dark Knight and like Heath Ledger's performance as the Joker and how that stole the show. Mm-hmm. And that every time I think of that role, I think of that story about the pageant plays, how like you have a villain that's like, you're, oh, you're almost on their side. Like, cause they're so delightful to watch. You want them to come back on screen. Like that's, that's the best kind of villain. I agree completely with you. They make the show. Do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Uh, introvert. Introvert. You hide it well. What grade was your favorite teacher? And do you remember his or her name? My favorite teacher, um, in third grade, I had a teacher named Mr. Griffiths and I actually wrote my first book. It was like an eight page book and I wrote it, dedicated it to him. And he was a great teacher, incredibly patient man. Uh, our classroom was, we were wild. Uh, we were loud. We were obnoxious. Everybody called him daddy Griff for some reason, Mr. <laughs> Griff. And he just put up with it. Great guy. And I just ran into him at a wedding a, about a year ago. Aww. Oh. He said, still has my book. Oh, wow. has my little book. It. It. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He needs a signed copy of your book coming up, right? <laughs> yeah. Which TV show are you binge watching right now? Um, Right now, I am loving The Last of Us. Ooh. Oh, yeah. But that's not binge watching. That's a slow drip. That's like, yeah. you know. <laughs> but I am loving, loving The Last of Us so much. And then if it's not that, I'm often re-watching a show called The Leftovers from HBO. That is my favorite show of all time. And it is funny and heartbreaking and imaginative and powerful. Um, I could just watch it. It's like a religious experience for me to watch that show. Love it. I've never watched this. I will write that down and start doing that. Um, On a plane, do you choose the leave me alone window seat, the I'm in a hurry to get out of here aisle seat, or the I bought my ticket too late middle seat? (laughs) I'm an aisle seat guy because you never know when you need to run to the bathroom and you don't want (laughs) to ask everybody to get there. So aisle seat for me. Very cool. Uh, Have you ever left a movie or a play mid-showing? Not a play. I have left movies before and I left The Life Aquatic, which is actually a movie I now love. But I was just like, I just somehow wasn't getting it and didn't get the vibe. And it's so, so funny to me that I walked out of it. I was just like, I'm not feeling it. And I left that movie when it was new. But I, but I generally really like Wes Anderson movies, but I walked out of Life Aquatic. Very cool. And the last question, which is always the most intellectual one, is what are your thoughts about hot dogs? Are they sandwiches? Oh my God. I can't believe you asked me about hot dogs. My keychain, I I don't know why. Like I'm just I enjoy the iconography of hot dogs. Like I've got pajamas with like hot dog prints on it, keychain that's like a Lego guy in a hot dog suit. Like my I hot dogs are a big part of my life. Um 
if my wife hears this podcast, she's going to crack up. This question. <laughs> Absolutely not. Because a hot dog is an elemental food item. It is, it is like, it occupies its own spiritual plane. It is, it's, it's the essence. It is its own essence of its own self and its own thing. Perhaps sandwiches are a form of hot dog. In fact, <laughs> it's like the square and the rectangle. Thank you so much for answering all of those. Yes, thank you. Great questions, man. I feel like oh, I know my Oh my gosh, Cliff. Okay, Christy, you you never fail to surprise us, but at the same time, yeah, Cliff, your answers are just awesome. Love, <laughs> love, love it. And and you know, um. It's just so nice to be able to share and to because I think one of the main goals of our one of the main goals of this podcast is to really to build that community of um because having a shelf book, majority of authors have those and they're not necessarily something that is talked about because maybe it's seen as a failure or seen as a disappointment or you know, insert negative connotation, whatever, or secret or something kept in the shadows. And we're trying to bring new life into that concept of a shelf book that it doesn't necessarily mean that it's, well, it can be forever shelf. We've had, we've had encounters of that, that we have tried our hardest to convince <laughs> authors to try and publish those shelf books. And they're like, no, that is forever shelved. It's never going to see the light of day. But there are also those like yours that it's like there is hope and there is there is a need for that shelf book to be out in the world, and we are definitely waiting with bated breath that one day we will see the announcement that your uh, the book of your heart, the first book that you've written, will finally make it onto shelves. And um, so, speaking of which, where can they find you, and where can they find me, the future? Yeah. So um, real quick, I just want to say something I love about this show because you reminded me. And I just want to say, I appreciate this show so much. It is, the, it is so life affirming and so sweet that you bring people on to have these conversations. And it makes me think about how when you have a dream, that the vibe of that dream is so strong, you want to talk to someone about it. But a lot of times people don't want to hear about your dream. You know, People don't want to hear about what you dreamed last night. And I, as, as like an exercise in empathy, when a person wants to tell me about their dream, in, I, I inherently don't care and I have to make myself care. Mm -hmm. And if one of my kids is like, I had this dream last night, it, it's like a discipline to say, I'm going to listen to your dream and I'm going to show you that I care about the dream you had. And I think it's one of the best ways to show someone that you care about them is, mm -hmm. is to care about the dream they had last night. Mm -hmm. And that's what you're doing on this show, except it's a dream that someone dreamed night after night after night after night for years, probably in many cases. And yet they've never been able to tell anyone about their dream and, or they felt like querying it out. Nobody wants to hear about my dream. And just you making a space for people to talk about this is so like soulful and wonderful. So great thing you're doing. Um, so if people, people want to find me, um, I am, I have the same handle everywhere. It's Hey Cliff Lewis. Hey Cliff Lewis. Um, C-L-I-F-F-L-E-W-I-S. So, hey, Cliff Lewis, that's my handle on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. I don't do TikTok a lot, but when I do them, I go all out and the production value is kind of fun. So there are some fun TikToks I have. Um, that's me everywhere. My website, heycliffelewis.com. 
Um, and that's where you can also pre-order We the Future, which is coming out on April 18th. Mm. And, and perfectly middle grade, by the way. Your handle is perfectly middle grade. Um, but but I feel like maybe uh, my my one of my final questions for you is like, would you ever consider writing an a novel for like maybe adult or going back to the young adult space? Or are you going to explore the middle grade a, few, a bit more? Yeah, I want, I will do a little more middle grade. My work in progress right now is middle grade. Um, I definitely intend to spread out into other categories as well and, and other formats. So I really want to write a graphic novel. I really want to write, um, I want to write my, my, I eventually want to write a Broadway show and that's like a whole other idea, but um, I like there's, I just, I, I love various mediums and I want to like play, I want to play, it's like, that's my dream is like to someday look back and see that I had told stories in like this whole menagerie of different mediums. So like, so I'll, I'll be doing over time, I'll be doing other categories and other mediums in addition to what I've done so far. That's, that's great because sometimes we can get boxed in into that one Thing, and then we we are afraid to venture out and do other things when in reality maybe we might uh, also find our stride there. Um, yeah. I think this is what's happening now. It's like the, a renaissance with the, a lot of the writers who started off with young adult. They're now branching out into either doing middle grade or adult or mystery or horror. It's like it's quite fun because you get to experience the author that you love in a mm -hmm. different genre in a different age category and um yeah and i just i just wish that you know like the the, the market doesn't box everybody in into that if you're this you're just this forever and ever amen um but really cliff thank you so much for joining us and thank you for sharing your shelf book with us and we are just delighted to have you on and to listen we could listen to you talk about your shelf book like from beginning to end. We want to know the entire story at this point <laughs> from beginning to end. And it's, it's we are definitely putting it out there. Uh, if there's an editor listening to this who's interested in knowing more about Cliff's story, you can reach out anywhere that he is available, I'm pretty sure, um, because we, we need this book right now, right now. But Shelby, if you also have a shell book story that you want to share with us, or you just want to say hi, please email us at shellbookspodcast at gmail.com and we would like we would love to share it here on the podcast as well and if you haven't subscribed yet please hit that subscribe button hit that like notification bell so that you don't miss a single episode of this podcast because you never know which is going to resonate with you which story is going to make you feel like oh i want to write my story as well or i want to revisit my shelf book you never know and we would like to know so please uh, let us know in the in the comments down below who who's your dream author that you want to see on this podcast because we are open to suggestions, Shelby. So please leave them in the comments down below and make sure uh, to leave us a review if you can uh, and wherever you listen to in your favorite podcast app because that also helps us to be found by other listeners and other viewers. You know, just like when you review a book, you leave a review wherever on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever, it helps readers find that book. So if you review for us too, leave a, leave a kind word, five stars. That's all we want. And, uh, you know, so that the algorithm gods will shine upon us. 
as uh, we have been trying and trying and trying. Sometimes it works, sometimes I don't know. You know? <laughs> so make sure to tune in next week because we have another amazing guest for you that we cannot wait for you to listen to or watch if you are on YouTube. So remember everybody, we are your hosts, Kate Evangelista, Angie Sandro, Christy Berman. And remember, keep on writing. Bye. And stay tuned. We have the first chapter of Cliff's book, We Are the Future, coming up next. We the Future by Cliff Lewis, an audio excerpt read by the author. Plan A, activation. Step one, run for your life. My chest, like the future, was burning. Still, I ran up the mountain trail. Even with the sun so low, with daylight running out, the birds went on chirping like they had all the time in the world. Nobody told them it wouldn't last. I wheezed and ran on. Once I reached the mountaintop, I gave myself permission to catch my breath, only a little. The inhaler in my pocket could open my lungs, flood me with sweet, cool oxygen, but not yet. I reached for the other pocket instead, mom's phone. One, nine, eight, five, invalid pin. One, two, three, four, invalid pin. 10, 27, my birthday, I'm in. I opened YouTube and hit record. I know how the world ends, I panted. Just ran up Marduk Pinnacle in Carbon Hill, Pennsylvania, but I'm not supposed to run this much because an asthma attack, like the one I'm having now, could kill me. I pointed mom's phone over the mountain's edge toward the coal-burning power plant in the distance. Those smokestacks are the reason I need this. I reached into my pocket and pulled out the inhaler, a blue plastic thing that looked like a cross between a Pez dispenser and a prescription pill bottle. But my medicine can't protect me forever. I mic-dropped the inhaler for dramatic effect. With struggling lungs, I told YouTube all the terrible things I'd learned about the climate apocalypse, a looming disaster the coal plant had already started. I wheezed and rattled off the hundred ways that ordinary people were speeding themselves to the brink of destruction. The vehicles, the vacations, the stuff in their grocery carts, all the harmless little choices that could bring on the end of the world as we know it. If the storms don't get you, something else will. The weather is just the beginning. One breakdown will set off a hundred others. A drought makes a war makes a plague. This is a chain reaction, so when the world breaks down and my inhalers run out, it won't be the weather that kills me. It's going to be the asthma, I gasped. We are running out of time. Done. I hit publish and dropped to my knees, scrambling for the inhaler, but it was gone, bounced right off the mountaintop. So much for dramatic effect. My lungs shrank and my panic grew, which made my lungs shrink even more, a chain reaction. I punched three numbers into mom's phone and waited for an answer. 911, what's your emergency? Too many to count, I thought, already unable to speak. My throat tightened, my thoughts drifted. Would anyone come to save me? Probably not, but had it been worth it? Had my wheezing 90-second video been enough to save the world, I'd probably never find out. I lay flat and watched the overlook a few paces off. It crossed my mind that the last thing I'd ever see might be this golden, deepening sunset. I could do worse. 
Then the web of filthy lights around the distant coal plant flickered on. Ew. Fossil fuels one, Jonah zero. Why even try to fight back when an army of smokestacks and tailpipes had all taken dead aim at one Jonah Kaminsky? First it was the asthma, then less than an hour ago it was the fuel tanker. That gas truck ran Mom's Prius straight off the road on our way home from what might have been our final round of miniature golf. No one got hurt, not even the Prius, but the irony was more than I could take. I'd felt so angry, so brave, when I grabbed Mom's phone and made a run for Marduk Pinnacle, as if I could take down the entire Carbon Empire with a single video upload. But the Empire had time on its side, and was always a hundred steps ahead of me. My head was feeling carbonated now, a prickly wave of tingles scattering out across my body. The world went speckly, everything in front of me bent, warped like the surface of a giant soap bubble, until the bubble popped and everything snapped right back to normal. Normal, except for the pink astronaut. The astronaut planted an American flag, Neil Armstrong style, straight into the mountaintop dirt. I had to be hallucinating. Dying will do that. The pink mirage picked up mom's phone, ended the 911 call, and knelt beside me. A voice crackled out from the pink helmet, high and carefree. Jonah Kaminsky? I nodded, my desperate face reflected in her visor. She handed me something small and silver, an inhaler. I'm from the future, she said. We need you. Hey, I'm Cliff, the guy who wrote all the words you just heard and all the other words that you can soon read in We the Future, a novel for young readers that's set to be published on April 18th, 2023, just in time for Earth Day. We the Future is about what happens when an anxious, asthmatic boy teams up with a girl from the future to launch a climate strike big enough to rewrite history. If that sounds like something you'd like to read, you can pre-order it by visiting my website, which is heyclifflewis.com. It's just heyclifflewis.com. You can also follow me for more updates on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Hive Social, all under the same handle, which is just heyclifflewis. And hey, thanks for listening to this. And that was another episode of the Shelved Books Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Till the next one, stay safe, read more, write more, and continue to be at your creative best. The world is waiting, and so are we.